following sermon was delivered at Antioch Presbyterian Church, a mission work of Calvary Presbytery of the Presbyterian Church in America located in Woodruff, South Carolina. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com or contact us at info at AntiochPCA.com. May the Lord bless you as you receive gracious instruction from His Word. When you go into a new place, and particularly a public place, but even some homes, uh, the first thing that you should look for would be prominent signage that tells you how it is you're supposed to behave or act in that place. Uh, perhaps boys and girls, maybe your parents have posted on the refrigerator or on a, a wall in the living room or even in, in your bedrooms the rules of the house, what it is you're supposed to do, how you're supposed to speak to your brothers and sisters or, or guests or of the like. And, and certainly, moms and dads, what do we do? What do we look for when we go to libraries or playgrounds we haven't been to before? If we notice a sign with rules, we should at least glance at it, see if there's anything special about that place that the authorities have put in place for our children and their behavior and even our own conduct. And adults, think about this. When you go into your workplace, does, does your job site have something posted on the wall? Either OSHA uh, regulations, how it is the government expects the factory to operate. We have this in the staff room at Greenville Seminary with all kinds of rules and regulations from the state mandated to be posted in, in a place where employees can see what it is we should expect from our employers and how it is we are to conduct ourselves. And even when you go into grocery stores now, you walk into Costco and right by the customer service desk, there are these three big values for uh, Costco's way of doing business that the employees are reminded of each and every time they enter. I have a friend who owns now a multi-million dollar business, and when he was giving me a tour of one of his shops, I noticed that he had the core values of his business right there on the wall to remind everybody in the business how it is he expects them to behave and to conduct themselves and to go about their daily work. I've even been in some older churches, Reformed churches. I think if you look at a picture of um, Jan Hus's church, they have this on the wall. If you go to, I believe, Second Presbyterian Church of Charleston, they have it on the wall. And other PCA churches, you'll have on one side very frequently the Ten Commandments, God's rule, His will for His covenant community. And sometimes on the other side, you'll have the summary of the Ten Commandments. Uh, you are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Well, what, what do all of these things express when they're posted on the wall or on a sign or in an employee handbook or on the refrigerator door? What do all of these things show us? They show us the will of the man in charge, don't they? They show us the will of whoever it is is regarded as an authority in those places. Do you want to know what's expected or required of you when you enter a home, a business, a workplace, a playground even? Well, you look at the signs. The signs left there, posted there by the parents, the proprietors, the authorities, or the boss, so that you may know what is his or her will for that particular place. You look at the house rules. Well, as we continue working through the Lord's Prayer this evening, we come tonight to the third petition, which is found in the second half of Matthew 6, verse 10. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And what are we praying for in that third petition? What are we praying for regarding the will of the one 
being who is in charge. Well, we just confessed it together from the Shorter Catechism, that God, by His grace, would make us able and willing to know, obey, and submit to His will in all things as the angels do in heaven. When we pray this petition, we confess what I want to show you this evening, namely that God's will is far better than anything this rebel world has to offer. God's will is far better than anything this rebel world has to offer. And so it becomes a petition that we bring to Him for His will to be done on earth, in this rebel world, even as it is done in heaven. We'll consider this petition under two headings then. In the first place, the will of God. Going a bit of a deep dive into what exactly we mean when we pray, Your will be done. And then in the second place, looking at heavenly obedience. What would it look like for God's will to be done on the earth? What does it look like that God's will is done in heaven? And why is it that this is incorporated into this model prayer that Christ gives us? So in the first place, what are we talking about when we're referring to the will of God? Theologians often speak of uh, God's will in two aspects. They're not opposed to each other. In fact, it's all one will of God, but two aspects of God's will. You have His secret will and His revealed will. That secret will, the fancy term, is His decretive will. That is, whatsoever comes to pass. That which He decrees. But it's so often secret to us. We don't know it. Much of it lies in the future. What's going to happen tomorrow to you and to me? We don't know. He hasn't told us down to its very details. That's God's secret will. Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to the Lord, but what has He given to us and to our children? His revealed will, His instructions, so that we might know how to live. And that's really what we're talking about now in the prayer, is God's revealed will for our lives. What theologians call His preceptive will, his will of precept, what he publishes and posts on the walls of his house to tell us what it is he wishes for us to do, what he desires for us to do. It's his plan not so much for the future as it is his plan for moral living and godly conduct in his kingdom, which we prayed for last week. This will this preceptive will of God, His revealed will for our lives, it is a will worth wanting and doing. Boys and girls, His will for you, what He's given to you in His Word, even in His law, what Christ is instructing us in the Sermon on the Mount, this is a will worth conforming your will to. And this is why. Consider how the psalmist puts it in Psalm 1. He says, How blessed is a man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law. We could say the will of the Lord. And in his law, he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree firmly planted, not in the desert or in desert places, but a tree firmly planted by streams of water. That's a place of life, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In whatever he does, he prospers. And so God's will is so worth, worthy of our attention and our delight and our desires. He deserves our heart because what he wills for us indeed is for his glory and for our good. But we have a fourfold problem 
And the larger catechism opens this up for us. And so I'll be working out of that this evening. Our fourfold problem, it all has to do with our sin nature, that original corruption of ours, that sin in which we've been conceived even from our mother's wombs, that, that guilt that we've inherited from Adam and the corruption of our nature due to his sin. By nature, we and all men are, in the first place, utterly unable and unwilling to know and do the will of God. God's will is good, but we have utterly rejected it. We are unable and unwilling either to know it on our own by our nature or to perform it for our good or His glory. Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 2.14, A natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. That's our first problem. We can't know his will. We can't see the house rules on the wall. And certainly we cannot perform it on our own. In the second place, by nature, we and all men are prone to rebel against his word. Where we are confronted with his law, we are prone by our very natures to reject it, to run far from it, to disobey it. Boys and girls, if your mom or your dad put a big cookie jar right in the center of the kitchen counter and put a sign on it says, that said, do not touch. What's the first thing you think about doing? Touching it, of course. Why? Because by our nature, you are prone to rebel against the rules. We want to break the rules. Isn't this knit into the very fabric of our national character, too? In America, more than any other nation, what do we want to do? We want to break all the rules. We want to have our own way. We want to sing our great anthem, not the Star Spangled Banner, but Frank Sinatra's song, I Had It My Way. You can have it your way. Even Burger King uses it as a slogan. And it works, doesn't it? That appeals to us. We're drawn to those things. We're prone to rebel against his word. Paul puts it in Romans 8. Because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God, or rebellious from God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. That's our second problem. Our third problem, by nature we and all men are to uh, repine and murmur against his providence. We are prone to repine and murmur against his providence. In simple terms, we're prone to complain, even when he's good to us. Christ will illustrate this later in Matthew's Gospel. He uses the parable of, uh, of the workers in the field, the men that uh, this landowner recruits to work in his field, and he promises them pay up front. He enters into a contract with them, and they all agree to do it. And then, at the end of the day, he pays out all these guys, some of whom started at the crack of dawn, others of whom had just been working for an hour, and he pays them all equally. And the guys who started at the beginning of the day say, hold up a second, this is a raw deal. How come that guy who's been out here for an hour gets paid the same as I do, and I've been breaking my back all day? Well, has the landowner cheated that man who's been working there all day? Not at all. He paid him exactly what was agreed to. In fact, a very generous amount. And yet, what does this tell us about human nature? What is Christ illustrating for us? All of us are prone to complain against God's providence, particularly when somebody else gets something good that either we didn't get or even that's equal to what we got. 
If you read the book of Numbers, it is a depressing account in many ways because again and again, the people of Israel who are feasting on miraculously supplied manna and water complain against God, even as His good providences are given to them. They've just been released and delivered out of slavery. And yet, almost the very first thing they do is murmur and complain against God. This, brothers and sisters, should not be so. But by our nature, this is the case, isn't it? Consider your own life. How in the last week have you turned over what should have been a blessing to the Lord and cursed Him and His providence in complaining and grumbling? The fourth problem then is by nature, we and all men are wholly inclined to do the will of the flesh and of the devil. Paul again in Ephesians chapter 2 says, You were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. He continues in Titus chapter 3, For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. Paul's not a hellfire and brimstone preacher beating people over the head. He's talking about himself. And truly, each of us, if we're being honest, would say about ourselves before God intervened in our hearts, this was a perfect profile and description of us. And what was going on. We were wholly inclined to do the will of the flesh and of the devil. We had no regard for the things of God. We were selfish to the uttermost. Well, God gives a fourfold solution to this fourfold problem. In the first place, He changes our nature by His Spirit. And He reveals to us His will by His Word. That's the first problem, isn't it? That we're unable and unwilling to know or to do the will of God. And God comes and He opens our minds. He enlightens our minds in the knowledge of Christ. And He renews our wills so that then we can know and we can do what it is He has for us to know and to do. Ephesians 1.17, in this great doxology, in this opening of the epistle, the, Paul, uh, the Apostle Paul writes, God, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him. And in Romans 12, he says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. This is God's work in us. And glory be to Him. He does not abandon us to our wickedness and our, and our uh, hardness of heart. But He comes and He breaks in and intervenes. He opens our eyes, causes those scales to fall. And He makes our hearts soft to His Word and grants us a tender conscience that we might recognize our sin and be driven to repentance. This is the great work of God in the lives of His people. In the second place, He takes us who are prone to rebel against His Word and He crushes our rebellion. He comes as a conquering King. He conquers our selfishness, our self-centeredness, these selfish wills of ours, and doesn't just stop there. He conquers us and then recruits us into His service. One of the remarkable things in the ancient world is when um, 
Alexander the Great sweeping across Asia Minor and into Persia and even unto India from Macedonia. Along the way, as he's conquering people, he recruits them into his service, into his army, and then uses them to roll his, uh, his military machine across into the next province and land. And God, uh, that's just a pale picture of what God does in our lives. He conquers our selfish wills, but then recruits us into his service. Colossians 1.13 puts it this way, He rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. Glory be to God our King, who converts us and draws us into His service. In the third place, He fills our hearts then with gratitude and contentment in Christ, such that we can join with the psalmist who sings in Psalm 138, I will give you thanks with all my heart. I will sing praises to you before the gods. I will bow down toward your holy temple and give thanks to your name for your loving kindness and your truth. For you have magnified your word, we might say your will, according to all your name. And we can say, just as we did at the beginning of this service, as we sang from Psalm 33, Sing for joy in the Lord, O you righteous ones. Praise is becoming to the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Sing praises to Him with a harp of ten strings. Sing to Him a new song. Play skillfully with a shout of joy. For the word of the Lord is upright, and all His work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of loving kindness, the loving kindness of the Lord. Those of us who once were lost in our grumbling and our complaining and our murmuring against God's provinces can now be thankful even in the very same circumstances. We can see a brother or a friend or someone else get great wealth and we can think now, not oh, how come he gets that and I don't, but rather say, praise be to the Lord for blessing that guy, for blessing my neighbor. We can be stricken even with affliction and turn over praise to God. And certainly look forward to his deliverance. John Butler, the pastor down at um, Lebanon PCA in Abbeville, South Carolina. His niece and I believe it was his sister-in-law. Actually, two of his nieces and his sister-in-law were picked up, hurled into the air, thrown over a house, and landed 75 yards away by a tornado in Kansas. Their, their truck was crushed. His uh, sister-in-law broke multiple bones all over her body. Uh, she had to have multiple surgeries on her spine. She'll never be the same physically. And yet, and this is the remarkable thing, whenever these things happen to Christians, her words were that she wanted everyone to know were God's hand was on us for good. He was with us. He saved us. He delivered us. By our nature, can we say such a thing? No. We would say, why did this happen to me? Certainly, I've said that over much less than getting hurled up into the air in a tornado, having an F-150 crushed all around me. But yet, by the grace of God and His work in our hearts, He can fill us with gratitude and contentment in Christ and His deliverances through these temporal trials and certainly in eternity. And then fourthly, those of us who are wholly inclined to do the will of our own flesh can be transformed. This is what God does. He transforms us by uniting us to Christ. Ephesians 2.10 For we are His workmanship created in Christ, Jesus, for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. He unites us to Christ, bring us, brings us into spiritual, living union with Him, transforming our hearts through faith. 
that we might then be his workmanship, that we might then be refashioned and reformed after the likeness of Jesus, who perfectly did all the holy will of his Father in heaven, according to his word. And that brings us now to our second heading. We've considered the will of God in some detail, using the larger catechism to help us break this down. We can now look more closely at heavenly obedience. Uh, this heavenly obedience is perfectly demonstrated in the life of Christ and by Christ as recorded in the Gospels for us. But we'll consider it this evening in two aspects. One, the present reality for which we're praying. And then two, our future hope to which we're looking. So we're praying for the present reality even as we look to a future hope as we consider heavenly obedience. The present reality, when we pray your will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Literally, the Greek is, May it, let, let be done your will, just as it is in heaven, so too on the earth. And so we're starting with the model in heaven and asking God to bring that model to the earth where what is the case? God certainly is having all His holy and secret will. But are the nations in full obedience to God as we see them? Is the will of God the house rules posted on the wall? Are they being followed in the world, which is indeed his creation? No, sadly not. The nations are not fully submitted to the king of heaven. Consider Psalm 2. What does the psalmist say? Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth, this is how they behave. Take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them all. Indeed, this is the sad situation of our present evil age. It's like a house in which the children gather together and scheme and plot against the designs and rules of their parents. And they're not asking together, How can we obey mommy and daddy better? But they're asking, how can we break their rules and enforce a new world order ourselves in this house? That's what's going on in the world around us. And that's what's been going on since Adam and Eve's rebellion in the garden. It's nothing new. Certainly, it's more widespread and intense as the populations of the earth have grown. But what about us, brothers and sisters? Do we plot and scheme and rage in our hearts against the will of God? Or do we heed His holy law? And do we seek to love it and delight in it and obey it that He might be glorified in our lives? This is an important truth that as we pray um, for God's will to be done, what we're praying for is that God would indeed cause men to submit to His will in our world. Don't let this point be missed. We're, we're asking God, calling upon Him, to enforce His will spiritually such that even the political systems of this world, the, the, the commercial establishments of this world, uh, certainly the churches of this world would fall in line in greater and greater measure with His revealed will. It is wholly appropriate, brothers and sisters, for us to pray from pulpits and individually for the scourge of abortion to be eradicated in our land. It's wholly appropriate for us to pray that, uh, that different commercial establishments would be closed on the Lord's day, not for the sake of profits or business or anything, but for the sake of honoring God. 
It's wholly appropriate for us to pray that God would reform his church according to his word and that her worship would be more pure and holy and beautiful, that his will would be done on earth, even as it is in heaven, where worship is without defect, where life is continually celebrated, where, uh, where the rest that we find in Christ is exalted. And so when we pray this prayer, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, there's something bittersweet about it because we recognize that his will is not being done on earth as it is in heaven. And we mourn and we lament over the condition of the rebel world and of our own rebellious hearts. We can say with the psalmist in 119.136, my eyes shed streams of water because they do not keep your law. If you're from a big city like I am, there's very rarely good news that makes national headlines out of big cities. And very frequently, I grieve and I mourn and I lament what's happening in my hometown. Just this past year, I've learned that uh, there have been, in the first 10 months of the year, more than 1,000 homicides or murders. Uh, that is more than twice the number that I ever heard for an annual count growing up. I thought 460 was bad as a kid. But to hear a 1,000 now at 33 years old, I don't live there. I don't have any plans or designs to live there in the, in the future. But if God's will is to call me back, I'll certainly go. But my heart breaks. I, I, I don't know that I weep streams. I don't, I don't think I, my eyes shed streams of water, but they certainly tear up. And I pray, Lord, bring your peace to our land. Cause the bloodshed to cease. Why is it that these things happen? And certainly that should be our prayer as we consider the wickedness and the rebellion of the world. But we don't let our prayers end in lament. Rather, we then resolve to study God's word and pray for help. Help from his spirit to identify rebellion and to know what obedience is. Psalm 143 verse 10 says, Teach me to do your will for you are my God. Let your good spirit lead me on level ground. And this should be our prayer when we pray your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We're asking God to teach us. You must seek for his will to be done in your life, in your heart, before you can ever really truly appreciate the magnitude of rebellion in the world around you. But how can you know his will? By studying his word and asking for God, teach me to do your will. Teach me to know your word and to understand it. Boys and girls, when you read your Bibles, isn't it difficult sometimes to understand what it is that you're reading? In those moments of difficulty where you're wondering, why am I reading this? This is such a sad story. What is this supposed to teach me? What do these laws mean? How am I supposed to keep them? What is all of this? Stop. Breathe. And pray, Lord, teach me your will. Open my eyes. Let me understand your word that I may behold wonderful things in your law. Make the psalmist words your words. Take the clear portions of scripture and cling to those. And then from that point on, try to work out what it is that the more mysterious and dark sayings, difficult to understand things are. and Why it is that they're there for you. Ask your parents and your pastors and your elders and the very many seminary students we have in this congregation for help to understand what it is you're reading. And truly, you will get the help that you need for God has purposed for you to know 
all his holy will. Now, you men and women, brothers and sisters, as you have grown and you've hurdled over those difficulties and those challenges, and as you grow in your understanding of theology and, and, and of God's word, what have you found in your own heart and your own life? Do you find that you've grown complacent and self-satisfied, fat on knowledge? I hope not, because you really haven't begun to understand anything, if that's the case. As we increase in our knowledge of and understanding of God's will, it revealed to us in His Word, applied to our hearts by His Spirit, this is how our response should be. A strange thing happens. You lament more, and yet you delight more at the same time. You lament over this reality I've described, that the nations are indeed in rebellion against God in ways that you never before noticed. You lament more over your own sin. Your heart's broken as you mourn over the unrighteousness that you've identified in your own heart, having gone to God's word and, and lifted it up to yourself as a mirror. But yet you also delight more in the grace of God in Christ. You delight more that he has made your conscience more tender, that he's revealing himself to you in ever fuller measure, that he's not abandoning you and leaving you in ignorance, but rather is shedding light on the realities of sin and salvation. It's a strange thing that happens as we grow in our understanding of God's word. We grow more satisfied in Christ and yet more hungry for that revelation. We yearn and desire to know it more. I was talking to a, a rather gifted seminary student this past week, and I asked him, I said, how much of the New Testament have you memorized? He said, all but two books. He's memorized all but two books of the New Testament. It's 25 out of 27 books. And he says, and I'm working on the other two. I'm hoping to have them memorized in the next year and a half. And I, my first thought was, that's amazing. And my second thought was, man, I wish I had 25 out of 27 books of the New Testament memorized. I didn't scorn him. I wasn't jealous of him in a malicious way. I certainly admired his discipline. And certainly he sacrificed a lot to get to that point. But my first thought was, man, I wish I had God's word stored up in my heart like that. And as you grow in your understanding of God's word, that hunger for his will to be imprinted and impressed upon your heart will grow more and more, even as you lament over sin and delight in Christ. This is the present reality for which we pray. But we do so with hope in a future promised by God. The orientation of this prayer, the way our posture should be mentally and spiritually, is primarily to the future. When we're praying your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, when we're praying that for our own lives, for the world around us, what we're really praying for is the consummation of God's will and purposes in our present age. Uh, but in as it, it progressively becomes more and more in line with God's will as revealed in His Word. We're praying for a future reality to break into, in greater measure, into the present. Parents, to put it simply, when you're praying that God would be at work in your children to be more obedient, you, you know just as well as I do that's not an instantaneous thing. But you're praying for the future. You're praying that they would mature and grow up and submit to God's holy will in their lives. That they might live lives of well-being and flourishing. And certainly even eternal living and well-being and flourishing in his kingdom of glory. 
Ultimately, what we're considering here is the obedience of elect men and angels perfected in heavenly communion with God. But pictured for us in Psalm 103, verses 20 to 22, where we read, Bless the Lord, you his angels mighty in strength, who perform his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all you his hosts, you who serve him, doing his will. Bless the Lord, all you works of his, in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. What we're praying for is that all those who are in Christ, who are indeed His works, who are indeed destined for glory, would ultimately, fully, and perfectly do all His holy will. A reality which we will experience only when Christ returns, when the dead are raised, and just men made perfect in Him. What does Matthew teach us? about the working out of God's revealed will, of how this is going to come about in greater and fuller measure as time marches on. He teaches us a few things. In the first place, from Matthew 7, he teaches us that only those who do the will of God will enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. And certainly he's speaking of those who do the will of God in the power of God by his spirit. Not those who are perfect, for we will not be perfect in this life, but those who sincerely and earnestly out of hearts remade by God in the inner man follow after Christ and heed his word, seek to do his will. Matthew also tells us that um, the, doing the will of God is the mark of family resemblance to Christ. Indeed, Christ says in Matthew 12, 50, For whoever does the will of my Father who is in heaven, he is my brother and sister and mother. Further, he tells us something about God's will to save. God wills to save his little sheep to the uttermost, abandoning even the 99 for a time in order to rescue the one. I shouldn't say abandoning. I should say setting aside, putting into the care of others that he might pursue the one. And brothers and sisters, as you think about your own children and you worry about them and you're anxious for them or whatever, consider this. God purposes to save all those who are His. He will even leave the majority of the flock to pursue the one in order to bring him or her back. That's God's will for His church. Also, the doing of God's will is not in word only, but in deeds which prove faith. Matthew 21, 28 to 32, Christ gives this parable. He says, what do you think? A man had two sons, and he came to the first and said, Son, go work today in the vineyard. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he regretted it, and he went. The man came to the second son and said the same thing. And he answered, I will, sir. But he didn't go. Which of the two did the will of his father? And they said, well, the first. Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you that the tax collectors and prostitutes will get into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and prostitutes did believe him, and you, seeing this, did not even feel remorse afterwards so as to believe him. What is Jesus teaching there about God's will and about doing the will of God? The believing and trusting in the message of the gospel. That is God's will for us, is to trust in Christ. To believe his, his revelation, his gospel, his message of salvation uh, given to us by John the Baptist and then fully in Christ himself. And finally, the will of the Father, and this is sobering, 
was to crush the Son for our iniquities. It's probably the, the, the peak of the revelation that Matthew gives us in his gospel account about the will of God. In Matthew 26, 39, in the Garden of Gethsemane, what happens? Jesus goes a little bit beyond the disciples. He falls on his face and he prays. He says, My Father, if it is possible that this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. And he went away again a second time and prayed, saying, My Father, if this cannot pass away unless I drink it, your will be done. Jesus prayed even as he instructed his disciples to pray, knowing full well, Isaiah 53, knowing full well what the Passover meal signified, knowing full well what all the sacrifices of the Old Testament were pointing forward to, namely that he himself would be crushed, that his blood would be spilled on the cross of Calvary for the sins of many. And why was this death effective? Only because... Christ perfectly did the will of his Father on our behalf. So when we consider what it looks like to do the will of God, we consider the example of Christ, knowing that what he did was not merely for an example to us, but really accomplished salvation on our behalf. And John opens this up for us. Jesus testifies, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. He says, I can do nothing on my own initiative. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And then John 6, 38-40, in the most clearest way possible, he says, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me. That of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. The Father's will was Christ's food. It was his search and his desire. It was indeed his mission, the salvation of sinners the securing of a worshiping people for his Father. So when we pray, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, we're referring to God's express will, his published will, what he has made known to us, what he requires of us, his revealed will for our lives. We're talking about the house rules. And we're praying for all men and nations of the earth to come under subjection to this holy and righteous will of our Father as published for us in His Word, as applied to our hearts by His Spirit. This is not a fatalistic prayer of your will be done, but rather it's a moral prayer. Lord, your will be done in my life and in the lives of my neighbors. We're not praying for His secret will to come to pass, that's not what we're praying for in this prayer. And we're not just praying for him to have his way in, in, that, in that fatalistic kind of sense and destiny coming around. Rather, we are praying for the Holy Spirit to intervene in the world, in the lives of men, and into our own hearts within us to bring all of us together under God's holy and righteous rule. We're praying in much like fashion what we prayed for, thy kingdom come. And what we prayed for when we say, hallowed be your name. We're praying according to God's will for his will to be enforced. In heaven, the unfallen angels do not resist God. They do not rebel against him. And Christ shows us 
that every Christian should yearn for this reality to be the case, not only in heaven, but also among men on the earth where he indeed has all authority. For God's will is far better than anything this rebel world has to offer. Psalm 1 to 3, or Psalm 1, 1 to 3 describes the desirability of God's will, the picture of a tree flourishing by streams of water, as we've already read. But verses 4 through 6 graphically detail what this rebel world has for you instead. Consider this. Rather than being flourishing trees, the wicked are not so, but they are like chaff with which the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. As we pray, your will be done. We're praying that the way of the wicked would perish from the face of the earth and God's will be enforced according to his gospel for our eternal salvation. That all men would rise up and call God the Father holy, Christ the Son, blessed Savior, and the Holy Spirit a great gift to mankind. We're praying that indeed God's will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. So let's pray together now in dedication of our own lives to this great cause and purpose that God has in the world. Let's pray. Our God in heaven, we bless your name and sanctify you. You are a holy God and worthy of all praise. And we confess to you once again, O Lord, that we are rebellious sinners by nature. And yet you have remade us and refashioned us through union with Christ. You have been gracious unto us, those of us who believe. And we plead with you, O Lord, to cause your spirit to go out unto all the earth and to regenerate the hearts of men, to bring in your elect, that you would be glorified in the nations, that your name would be exalted, and that hallelujah would be sung across all the earth. Lord, we pray that your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven, as your kingdom comes, and as your name is hallowed in our midst. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Antioch Presbyterian Church. We are located in the historic Cashville community of Woodruff, South Carolina, near the intersection of South Carolina Highways 101 and 417. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com.